Good evening everyone, thank you so much for coming to our pre-performance talk. Um, my name is Alexandra Coglin. I'm a music critic and journalist and I'll be chairing our panel discussion this evening. Um, we're just waiting for Martin Brabens who will join us presently. Um, he is the music director of ENO and also of course the conductor of the War Requiem. Um, but for now can I introduce you to the rest of our panel. Um, in the centre we have Elaine Tyler-Hall who is an ENO staff director and has also been working with director Daniel Kramer on this production of the War Requiem. And at the end we have Dr Milena Mikalski who is the artist in residence and also a visiting fellow at the War Studies Department of King's College London. And just before I open up the discussion to the panel, I've been asked to give you a very short introduction to the War Requiem itself as a piece, some idea of the context it comes out of, and perhaps also to raise some questions that we'll try and explore in greater depth in our conversation. So if you stand in the centre of the nave of Coventry Cathedral and you look out of the back through the great west window, you can just about see in just about in that image, um, the, the ruin of the original 15th century cathedral, which of course was famously destroyed on the 14th of November 1940 in a German bombing raid. Um, as a metaphor, as a visual symbol for the War Requiem, the work by Benjamin Britten famously inspired by this building and composed for it, I think it couldn't be more apt. Um, the architect's decision not to replace the original structure, but to build his at right angles to it, to create a juxtaposition between them, a dialogue, a conversation between old and new, to provide a fresh contemporary perspective on something very familiar, I think is precisely for me the key to the War Requiem itself, in which Benjamin Britten is taking a very familiar form, the Latin Requiem Mass for the Dead, and is inviting us to view it through the contemporary window of Wilfred Owen's First World War poems. Now, just to give you a little bit of context about how the work itself came about. So after the bombing raid destroyed Coventry, um, quite quickly conversations began about the rebuilding of the cathedral. And that building became quite quickly um, an important symbol for rebirth, for reconciliation, for new beginnings after the war. Um, quite an important um, event of national interest. Um, architect Basil Spence was chosen to rebuild the cathedral. And, um, the new cathedral was to be consecrated with an arts festival. Various composers were commissioned, including Michael Tippett, whose opera King Priam was also premiered as part of the festival. Benjamin Britten was also commissioned, and he was given an open brief. I think it's important to stress he could have produced a song cycle, he could have produced a cello concerto. He chose to write a war requiem. And I think what I want to convey to you here is that this wasn't a casual decision or a spontaneous one. This work had been many decades in the making. And in order to explain where that comes from, where the origins of that work begin, I think we have to go back to 1939. So in 1939, Britain and his partner Peter Pears leave uh, the UK for America. If you read the letters, if you read the diaries, I think the sense is that Europe is over, America is the home of the future. But as the war progresses, the tone changes. I think he becomes homesick, but more than that, I think there's a growing sense of guilt that somehow he's abandoned his nation at this time of crisis and he can't live with himself. So in 1942, he makes the difficult decision to return to, to England. Um, as a committed pacifist, uh, those convictions he's held, I think, since childhood, they emerge in, in early works, but have really come into focus during the Second World War. Um, he doesn't take this decision lightly. To return to the UK is to risk not just censure from the public for, for leaving the UK for America, but also to face imprisonment. And Michael Tippett, his colleague, famously was imprisoned in Wormwood Scrubs for three months for the same pacifist convictions. And you can see in this quote from the top in a letter how worried Britain was about the consequences of his return. And he was luckier than Tippett. He was allowed to register as a conscientious objector and to contribute to the war effort by continuing to compose. 
Um, it's worth also saying that in 1945, as soon as the war ended, um, he also contributed to the war effort by undertaking a concert tour of concentration camps with the violinist Yehudi Menuhin. He saw firsthand the ravages of war, the horror, the very human cost of conflict. All of that, I think, leads up to the composition of the War Requiem. We know that in the immediate aftermath of Hiroshima and several years later, several times Britain contemplated a large-scale work inspired by his pacifist beliefs. But for various reasons, the project never got off the ground. He couldn't find the right librettist, he couldn't find the right context for it. And it seems to have been the idea to write a requiem that really focused his ideas, to engage with a form that composers, you know, most famously Mozart, of course, Verdi, a composer whose um, setting of the requiem Britain quotes very directly. And I'm hoping um, if Martin comes, he might speak to that a bit later on. So Britain is very much aware of the weight and the tradition that this form brings with it. But he doesn't just want to, to echo, to imitate the earlier forms. He wants to bring his own perspective on it. How does he do it? Well, again, we turn to his letters to explain that. He writes, I am writing a requiem mass for chorus and orchestra in memory of all those of all nations who died in the last war. I think important that, those of all nations, not just the English. And I am interspersing the Latin text with many poems by Wilfred Owen. These magnificent poems, full of the hate of destruction, are a kind of commentary on the mass. I think that's an interesting phrase, a commentary on the mass. You know, what does he mean by that? Is it an ironic commentary? Is it subversive? Is it a criticism of the, the ability of the mass to answer all our questions, to provide us with an appropriate journey through grief? Or is it something more positive? Is it a commentary that affirms, that amplifies, that adds and um, that illustrates, I suppose, puts a human face on something more ritual, something more abstract? I think that's the first of many questions raised by the War Requiem, and I just wanted to leave you with a couple, a couple more um, to think about as we talk and also perhaps as you watch the performance this evening. Um, first of all, who is this Requiem for? Traditionally in the Catholic faith, a Requiem is a very active um, performance of, of faith. It, it helps the, the souls of the dead to transition from one state to another. Is that what's going on here? Is this a Requiem about the dead? Or is it, in the tradition of the 20th century requiem, a requiem that's more about consoling the living? Does it really offer us consolation? I'm not sure, and again, our speakers might have something to say to that. What is the function of a requiem? If we think of the title page of the work, he quotes Wilfred Owen, all a poet can do today is warn. Is that what's going on here? Is it a warning? Is it a plea in 1962 on the brink, as Britain believes, of nuclear war for his contemporaries to look back to the mistakes of the past and not to repeat them? What is this tricky relationship between the Latin texts and the English texts? Is it one of tension? Is it one of irony? Or is it one of amplification, of support? And finally, I think the question that, that we all leave asking, do we really find peace? We arrive in paradise, the text tells us at the end of the war requiem, but how, how long-lasting is that? Have we really grasped it? Or is it just a vision that remains just out of our reach? Um, I'm hoping we can come to some conclusions in our conversation. Um, Milena, perhaps we can start with you here. Can you give us a bit more context? So 1962 is the premiere of the work. Can you tell us a bit about how war is being presented in art, in the media at this point? Well, I wanted first of all to say, um, to say that as, as this, is, this was created, commissioned to commemorate the centenary of the First World War, uh, that I think also we need to look at how the First World War was thought of at these different points as well. Um, so in the 1940s, I think, in the same way as possibly after the First World War, there was a, there was a kind of propaganda element, um, a kind of we're all in this together, and you know, despite the fact that we've all suffered, um, we can get through this. 
which I think would be much harder to find looking back on it later on. So um, I was thinking, for instance, of um, Paul Nash's work and, and he, the, the work he did during the First World War and then where there are, um, there's a lot of destruction, nature and landscape, but um, which in, in many ways is also reminiscent of some of the, uh, landscape, the nature images that are used here, bits and elements of it. And how um, in 1941 he painted Dead Sea, Tortoise Mer, which has all the German planes sort of in the, sort of on their heads, <laughs> sort of place up, up rooted uh, in the um, kind of air aircraft dump. And there were British, these are all German planes, which is why he's given it a German title. And clearly it's, you know, this is, this is what we've done, we've destroyed them, um, without showing any of the British aircraft that there were there as well. The emphasis wasn't on, on the general loss and destruction, but it was on, yeah, this is what we've achieved, managed to do, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were many other examples. And the War Artists Advisory Committee, you know, specifically telling artists, you know, how they need to kind of boost morale and, and record the war in, in certain ways. Um, and preferably not abstract ways. But then by the time you come to the 60s, as Alexandra said, there were very different threats and, and terrors of um, you know, nuclear war, which brought a completely different perspective to it. And I think shifted the way people thought about war in general. It suddenly became um, terrifying in a, in a kind of very visceral present way. And looking back at any triumphs or anything achieved in the past didn't really help. Um, so I'm thinking, yeah, with with protest movements that came about in the 60s and the, you know, nuclear disarmament, it was, as a, again, it was a very different um, environment to be working in. And then there's also the, the idea to consider that um, after the Second World War, there was a, a kind of proliferation of, of more abstract movements and sort of the further on in time became the more it came to pop art and, and abstract expression. There's all sorts of other movements which were not directly relating to the war. So then it's a much more conscious choice to say, I'm going to go back and, and deal with questions of war um, through art. And again, yeah, if we think about um, music that was written, you know, um, Shostakovich, you know, Siege of Leningrad, music or Prokofiev or, or um, War and Peace, things that were written precisely to um, stimulate people to action, to, to give them courage and, and, yeah, in propaganda senses, in a, in a very different way from this. And I say it's the general mood at the time was very different. So. Millen has used the phrase protest art. Elaine, do you see it in, in that sense as a work? Um, I, I think it has to be thought of. I think it has to be thought of as, as a protest. Uh, we're looking at it now in the 21st century, um, and it certainly isn't a piece of history, I think, this piece, just because our, con our connection with our, uh, war nowadays is so um, ruled by the television, and we see things on television. Actually, our actual experience of, of war in this country is there's very few of us who've lived through a war. Um, I'm quite old now, but... Um, even my parents didn't fight in the war. They lived through the last war. So we have a very tenuous and very um, uh, strange relationship with war that it's, it lives in a little box in the corner of, of, our, of our living rooms. Um, and we have instant responses to that. Uh, 
but we don't experience it. And what's so wonderful about this piece is that uh, Britain himself lived through the Second World War and experienced that. Wilfred Owen, of course, experienced the trenches and, and the world of the First World War. Um, and so we're seeing it sort of interestingly through people who really experienced it, something that we can't do ourselves. So do you think a staging now has different responsibilities, different um, aesthetic priorities to one in the 1960s or if it had been staged in, in 1945 even? Tastes change, obviously, and we look at uh, what we expect from our, our arts organisations. We expect different things of them. We expect them to um, ask serious questions about the world around us. Um, I've, I've worked with many directors, and I, I'm always very conscious of Peter Sellers, who I worked with a couple of times, um, who says that what we see on a stage, particularly uh, that the stage of an opera house should reflect the world that we see around us. The people on, that we see on the street, we should see them on the stage as well. Otherwise, it's a historical exercise. Um, and, and so I think that, that we can take a very con contemporary look at this piece now. And uh, where we are not experiencing more ourselves, that war is possibly now morphing into experiencing um, dissent within our society or very disillusioned people who uh, turn against our society. So it's almost a, a war within that we're also looking at, as well as these huge um, theatres of war that were the Second World War and the First World War, of course. Mm. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> We're just talking a little bit about the context of the Requiem. I wonder, hello. <laughs> I wonder if you can um, perhaps tell us anything about why there's this gap between 1945, the conflict ends, and finally in 1962, Britain feels able to write this great tribute to the Second World War. It's not that big a gap, is it? 20 years? Yeah. But it takes a long time to process these things. Um, sorry, I've had a very full day of stuff. <laughs> I've tried to <laughs> adjust. Um, Britain had long been wanting to write a big choral piece. He'd planned various things, even had texts written, and, but it never felt like the right moment. And I suppose when this came along, it seemed the obvious chance for him to express his beliefs, which he did so brilliantly, his pacifist beliefs, which, you know, at the time of the uh, Second War got him into a bit of trouble. People were unhappy with him for going to America. Uh, but he, you know, he went with his convictions and his beliefs and then was able, in this piece, to express the profound hatred, if you like, of, of violence and conflict. Mm. And he does it... He, it's a piece of, with great hope and reconciliation at the end. And I'm, that's the thing that's so moving about the piece, isn't it? That you end with this extraordinary feeling of spiritual uplift. Well, I do, and I hope if you're, you're coming tonight, presumably, are you? You better be. <laughs> um, I hope you get that sense too. Um, and he, he, of course, the way he, maybe you're going to talk about this anyway, the way he combines the two, the, the Requiem and the Owen is extraordinary, and the way he uh, separates and delineates them musically is extremely clever. 
extremely clever. I mean, he was a born opera composer. You know, some people call the Verdi Requiem Verdi's greatest opera. I'm not sure this is Britain's best opera because, you know, you might have views of your own on Peter Grimes and Billy Budd and so on. But it is an extraordinarily naturally dramatic experience, which Britain makes very clear for the audience. You've mentioned the great reconciliation, <coughs> the peace that we achieve at the end. Before we can earn it, though, we have to go through, through some horror. Um, I was reading Hans Christian Andersen this week, and he writes that where, where words fail, uh, music, music can step in. How does Britain speak about the unspeakable in this work? Well, music is, you know, it's the greatest, isn't it? It's the greatest art. I'm not contradicting Because it can, it's, it'll say something different to all of you tonight. You'll all experience totally different things. And that is the, the amazing thing about music, that just with a, a, a harmonic turn or a melodic turn or the way Britain sets the text, he's able to amplify and reinforce and enhance the meaning of the poetry of, of Wilfred Owen and the, the, the text of, of the Mass for the Dead. So, yeah, I mean, music, it's I've been conducting Vaughan Williams all day with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And, you know, the way, why are the 500 sets of the Beethoven symphonies on record? Because everybody can find something new or a different way of expressing things through music. Why, I don't know how many recordings of the War Requiem are, probably 20, at least. So, you know, the people, people can express different things in music, and you as listeners, everyone will take something different from each interpretation of a piece, which is why it's so great. You know, it's just limitless and endless possibilities with music. Now, that's got away completely from what you asked me. <laughs> I wonder if you can give us a, a specific example of a place in the piece where the music does the talking. Well, it's right at the beginning. So it, and it starts with this big, throbbing, deep sound. And then there's a lovely, gentle chord. And then we haven't got the piano here, have we? There's the bells strike two notes together, which come back several times in the piece. And they are, it's the tritone. So if you, it's F, C and F sharp. So they're the notes in the scale that are halfway between the octave. And it's known, the tritone was known from about the 16th century as the diabolus in musica, the devil in music. Because it's, it's not consonant, it's not dissonant, but it's not consonant. It's, it's asking a question. That very interval asks a question. He answers it in many different ways, but that, that is what sets up the kind of the tone of the piece. There's this constant unsettling of, of, the, of the listener through these strange, not dissonant, uh, disconcerting intervals, which come time and again, and not just the C and F sharp. It can be spelt in any E natural and B flat, or F natural and B natural, they're all tritones. And they, it happens a lot in this piece, and it does create discomfort in the listener, which is deliberate. It's not nasty dissonance, but it's, it's questioning all the time. And that's, that's what Britain does in this piece. 
I wonder about the visual arts. You know, we've spoken about what music can do that other arts can. Um, and Martin's made quite a bold claim here for music. And what about the visual arts? What do they have to say about conflict? Well, I think a lot of what um, Martin said is very, very interesting and relevant as well. And I think, um, although I would agree about music ultimately, <laughs> I think, but um, I think the question of, of representation and abstraction as well is very important in terms of what you explicitly say and what you take away from something that might be abstract. Um, and so, for example, at the, um, at the moment we have, I mean, you were talking about reconciliation, both of you, and at the moment we have at King's College a, an exhibition on um, art and reconciliation, and it is dealing with very much contemporary sort of lived-through experiences with uh, the former Yugoslavia, so the Western Balkans, so the war um, that took place there, and a lot of the artists who've contributed are from there, and they've lived through the war. So we sort of gave them an open brief, create something that in some way relates to this, and that was it. And for some people, that was a very personal account of how they lived through it. For others, it was a way of just saying the arts are what got me through. Just creating art is something that helped me to survive. It gave me some other kind of purpose. Um, for other people, it's um, painstakingly copying you know, by hand, um, ink drawing, newspaper headlines, so something that might just be thrown away or discarded, but actually the time it takes to do that. So, you know, there are many, many other things. Um, and each viewer who comes to see that exhibition also takes away their own understanding of what these works are. So there's the kind of prescriptive, I have something to say and this is how I'm going to say it and this is how you need to take it. And then there's the, what I think is perhaps more meaningful, um, expression of something that possibly can't even be defined in words that is then understood maybe in that way, maybe in another way. And we call the exhibition Reconciliations because there are many reconciliations um, within that. And I think some of that is the artist within himself and so reconciling his intention or her intention with what the viewer takes away. And the other might be between different parties in war, different sides in a conflict or nations. But there are just you know infinite levels of, of reconciliation in, in this piece or yeah, whether it fails or succeeds, whether it's even possible, but it's the trying to find something to communicate. I think it's the being communicating, being heard, being listened to, not necessarily agreement, but something it, like that. Elaine, inevitably any piece of art is changed by our sense of context, where we see it, how we engage with it. This is a work written for a cathedral, often heard in concert halls. How do we do we watch it differently in an opera house? Should we engage with it differently? Um that's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, it, it it's interesting that a theatre has a, a kind of subliminal meaning to people. That they're, they're going to go for a night out in the theatre. Um, but I hope that uh, we kind of try and, uh, and address all sorts of things in a theatre. You know, it can be very frivolous, um, Gilbert and Sullivan, and we go and have real fun. Uh, we can also uh, do very serious work in the theatre. Um, and this is one of those pieces, obviously, where uh, you're going to go and sit with a lot of other people in a space where we're privileged to hear wonderful music from, from the pit and wonderful singers on stage. And we also have visual input. And the combination of an audience and performers within a single space can create an extraordinary atmosphere and um, give an emotional experience that you can't really experience anywhere else. Um, uh, I, I, I've worked in the theatre for many, many, many 
years um, and have worked on a huge variety of different operas, different staged works. Um, and I'm constantly excited by sitting in the auditorium with an audience of people listening, watching, and experiencing. And I'm not saying that everybody always enjoys everything or hates everything, you know, it's some things they really love. Uh, but it is that shared experience which is very, very, very special, I think. Is it a ritual? Is it an entertainment? <clears throat> Can it be both? Should it be both? Uh, have many of you experienced the War Requiem in concert? Yes. How many haven't, just out of interest? Yeah, so more. So that's great. <clears throat> and the, the, the piece is a, a masterpiece in concert. So our main task has been right from the beginning when Daniel and I talked about doing this piece, our main task was to not detract from what's already a masterpiece. And we've approached it in that in a very delicate and respectful way. Um, and I think the cumulative ex experience that we create with the, with what the, the visual images that Wolfgang has, has made, which is so striking and beautiful, and then the, the actual acting, if you like, what the, the work that Daniel with Elaine has, and uh, Anne, the choreographer, have done with the, the bodies on stage, has always been terribly conscious of the fact that we have to add to what is already a masterpiece. And it's been a, a, a constant striving that we've, I hope we've succeeded most, most, a lot of the time, really huge amount of the time. And I think the, the experience is an enhancement of those, for those of you that have heard it in concert, it is an enhancement of the piece because it's done with such care and love and affection. Um, in a sense, it's ritualistic, but I think there's a... a my wife was at the premiere, and she, the, her favourite moments were the stillest moments. So when actually it is like a ritual, and you, the audience, become part of what, what we're doing. And that's a, a very extraordinary feeling. And it's wonderful to, to end, a, end a piece with a huge ovation, but it's much more impressive to end a piece with incredible silence, which is what we will we'll find, with, which we found on Friday, and I'm sure it'll happen again tonight, because there's something very special and touching about what, what we've done, especially at this moment. You know, and my father fought through the Second World War, and for me it's been a very personal tribute to him as well. So uh, I think it'll touch you, in a, in perhaps in an unexpected way. I hope so. As, as Elaine said, you know, that's what theatre's for. Crikey, we don't just do it for fun. Um, you know, it's our, li it's, it's our lives, it's our passion. We do it because we want to affect your lives. We, you don't come to the theatre just to, you know, relax and have a good time. You're, you're participating in the, in the experience too. And I think with this piece, you'll, you'll, you'll be brought into our world as performers, I hope, that we share it together. Elaine, you've been in the rehearsal room since the start. You've been involved in this project all the way through. Without giving too much away, can you talk us through Wolfgang and Daniel's sort of vision, their inspiration for the production? I will try. Um, <laughs> uh, these things always take a long time to put together. So, you know, this is, we're talking a few years of, of 
conversations and work between Daniel and, and Wolfgang. Um, and I think the catalyst for, for Daniel was that Wolfgang found a little book which was printed in the 1920s and it was um, uh, very anti-war. It was, the message of the book really was, uh, please, please, please do not teach your children that war is a good thing. Um, and I think that really touched Daniel's heart. Um, he felt that this is absolutely the thing that we should be thinking about now, that uh, the, the people that suffer the most, really, from war is, is the children. Uh, and so this little book, we start off, and you'll, you'll see when you go to the theatre, we have some wonderful screens to show some of these images. Um, and we start as if reading a book. And the pages of the book open and take us into this whole world that Wolfgang and Daniel have created. Um, and the, the images of children come back several times. We have a wonderful, wonderful children's choir, the Finchley Children's Choir, who are just stunning. Um, but they're very involved in this whole production. Um, and we have images of children playing or children's games. And there's just one image that you would, will pick up on. There's a game called Duck, Duck, Goose, which is circles of children. And somebody goes around and taps the heads of the children. And when they get a double tap, they're he. And they have to chase and run. And so it's this idea of what's this random choice? War can create these random choices where who lives, who dies. Um, and so just these very simple, simple little images of, that start as a children's game can turn into a game of who lives and who dies in a war. Who makes that choice? Why? Why does one person die and another survive? Um, and the children come back several times through the piece. Um, very poignantly, I think, you know, it's, it's always just picking up on this idea of this is the next generation. These are our future. These people are our future. What can we give to them? What can they show to us that we need to hold on to and prevent this from happening again? That's what we're trying to achieve. And Milena, you've already seen the performance. Um, were there any images, either Wolfgang's images or the images on stage, that, that struck you particularly as a scholar of conflict as presented in, in the visual arts and media? Yes, well, I think very much what um, Elaine has just said, that's incredibly striking, the opening. And again, I won't say any more about it either because you have to just see what it feels like to, to see that. Um, but on top of that, also um, the very subdued kind of colouring, the very, very subdued, muted um, tones of the people, but then against these stark images. So it's all the more powerful, as you were saying, again, with the silences and also with the... Um, yeah, the almost abstracted people. So on one hand, it's very personal and in intimate and human. On the, on the other hand, it's very, um, yeah, muted, as I say, it's, it's subtle. And then against that, you get very strong images of nature. But I think we have to think very hard about how nature's used. And of course, the nature contrasts to the human element, but there's nature in a destructive sense and nature in a kind of surviving through anything sense that, and nature as a contrast or as a parallel. And it, it actually made me think a little bit of Tarkovsky of Ivan's childhood, where nature is used in a dream as a kind of idyllic thing, but in reality as the harsh sort of surroundings. Um, so yeah, the nature images are very, very powerful. And then on top of that, 
in contrast to that, the very, very, very um, direct, immediate, sort of political, specific image that, again, I won't tell you what it is, but you suddenly see that against everything else, and it's just seared into my brain, certainly. So, yes. And from a musical point of view, I was interested, Martin, earlier you quoted that description of Verdi's Requiem as uh, his latest opera in ecclesiastical dress. Greatest opera. Greatest opera, greatest sorry. Opera, yeah. um, is this Britain's greatest opera yeah. in ecclesiastical dress? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it is inherently dramatic. In the concert hall, it's dramatic. We have, we have two orchestras. There's a chamber orchestra which accompanies the tenor and baritone, who are the two main protagonists, if you like, in the piece. There's the symphony orchestra around... So I have two orchestras around me, a little one here and then the big one here. And spilling into the boxes, we have the percussion. So that large orchestra always functions with the chorus. So they are the, doing the, and living the, the mass, the, the requiem mass. And the soprano always also sings in Latin. So she never sings in... in, in never sings Owen's text. And we have then the, the other element of the piece, which Elaine just alluded to, was the, is the children's choir, who are on stage and off stage uh, at various times. Uh, they create an ethereal, angelic presence, orally, although in this production they're very, very heavily involved. And as Elaine said, they've been remarkable, these young, young people. So you, you have a naturally dramatic structure within the piece. And the contrasts that Britain uh, make, uh, manages to achieve are huge as well. Suddenly you go from this massive sound to the tiny 13, 12 instruments of the chamber orchestra. So you, you need to have all your, your ears very sharply focused tonight because there are, there are lots of things to, to listen to. And we get some remarkably quiet moments in this piece. We really do. Um, we've been blessed with the most incredible cast. I mean, Emma Bell is imperious. Uh, David Butt Phillip is so touching and intense. And Roddy Williams has just got a poetry unlike anyone else. So we've been so fortunate with the people we've, uh, we've cast. And that's, that's been a joy to work with. So there's an inherent drama to the music, but Elaine, how do we watch it? Do we look for a narrative visually? Is there a musical narrative? Are the two in sync? Are they in conflict at any moments? I, Daniel Kramer likes to talk about layers, and I think he's absolutely right that uh, there are so many layers in this piece, and we have the music supporting everything, and we have the text, both the Latin and, and Wilfred Dohn's poems. Then we have... The, um, the sound world from the stage that the singers are creating and, and the images that the human beings on stage are creating. And then we have another layer, which is the, the wonderful imagery that Wolfgang Tillmans has created. So we have a lot of things going on. Um, everyone will find different things that they, they will engage with. Um, Every single layer will really fire your imagination, I think. And they work together in sync. They work in opposition. But working in opposition also sparks the imagination and makes you think about things and takes you into a new place. So although it's not uh, telling 
a story and, and, and hasn't got a, a linear story going through it. There are images and there are emotions and there are mini stories that you will absolutely see and understand and, and that will take you, I think you'll take them away with you and they will keep coming back to you in the next days and weeks. Um, just sort of little thoughts and giving you a new perspective on, on the music and on, 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 the, on the poetry. Just a final question to all of you, and perhaps we can start with Martin. I wonder, particularly you two who've lived with this piece now for so long, um, are there any particular moments, either orally or visually, that every evening when you, you go through the show you look forward to or that strike you or that, that hurt you each night? I like the snow moment. <laughs> No, I mean, there are too many. For, I'm, I'm not very good at favourites of any, anything. But uh, there are so many wonderful things in this piece. But the snow moment is something to... You'll, you, you won't miss that. Snow is, snow is good. Um, I think my favourite moment, and I am going to have a favourite moment, is, is Strange Meeting, the section at the end between the tenor and the baritone, which is unbelievable. Can you just tell us a little more about that, why it's unbelievable? Uh, it, the culmination of the evening was the last section of the Liberame, and we have a, a solo section for the tenor and a response from the baritone. Um, I don't want to say more than that, really, but it's Martin was talking about the kind of incredible stillness and quiet that we create on stage, and I think that is absolutely for me the epitome of, of, a, of a wonderfully theatrical but real moment. Milena, does anything strike you particularly? Yeah, I, I was also thinking about the snow moment, and it's funny because at the dress rehearsal, we were with a group of um, school children and we came out, and they were saying to each other, was that supposed to happen like that? Was it meant to be like that? And everybody was talking about it, thinking about it. But no, just one thing, again, I don't want to give anything away, but just think about, along with everything else, think about the lighting as well and what happens with the light and the space that you're in. That's all. I don't want to say any more than that, but just think about it. <laughs> Actually, one, th one thing I would like to emphasise, because we haven't really commented on them, is the chorus in this piece. They are actually the heart of the piece. Um, so we have 80 members of the chorus, which is f our 40 E&O choristers, plus the international Porgy and Bess ensemble. So it's an extraordinary vocal sound. And they sing more than any of the other, of the, any of the principal characters put together, actually. And the, f the simple fact of memorising that music has been an enormous task. So uh, there's been a little bit of sadness in the chorus department over the last few days because this hasn't been re remarked upon by many reviewers. But the, 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 the role the chorus play in this and the difficulty of their musical role is absolutely extraordinary. So I, uh, that's probably something that, yeah, I'm, I'm so proud and honoured to be there with them because they make the most amazing sound, mm. I promise you. We've got about two or three minutes left, and I wonder if we can maybe take one or two questions from the floor. Hands straight up there. You may have to shout quite loudly. Sorry, I really want to ask Martin about because, um, you know, Britain wrote it for... Britain scored it for the two separate orchestras, the chamber orchestra and the full orchestra. I'm just, and they were conducted separately. I'm just wondering what it's like for you as an emotional experience and a physical experience to be conducting both of them because you don't get a break. That's only an hour and a half. It's, it's an act of Wagner. It's, no, it's nothing. I, I mean, it's, it was conducted separately at the premiere, but I'm not sure whether that was 
by design or necessity. It wasn't, it was because Britain was injured. Yeah, I know. So so, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, the first time I did the piece, I just did the big orchestra and the chorus, 20, whatever it was, 25 years ago. And I felt very hard done by, because some of the best music is with the, the chamber orchestra. So ever since then, I've always done it uh, both together. And they, they run, they, they join, they don't overlap. So you, one conductor can easily do it all. Um, and so, yeah, we get two different sound worlds. They, they both come from the pit, but they are very distinct. And I wouldn't do it any other way. And well, until I get really ancient. <laughs> <laughs> Any further questions? Yes, at the back. Hello, I'm sort of conscious that a lot of discussion has gone around how it grew out of the Second World War. And the performers <coughs> at the premiere very much reflected that uh, <coughs> conciliation. Um, had they all been able to attend, I know Heather Harper stood in for Wisniewskaya, but the idea was one of um, reconciliation. So we're talking about it coming out of the Second World War, but so much of it with Wilfred Owen is based from the First World War. At the time of premiere, probably the Second World War was in people's minds. Today, it's the First World War. But to what extent is this truly a requiem for those who have been killed in conflict in all time? and there have been so many minor conflicts since 1962. Is it a requiem for them too? Was it a real act of forethought? Interesting question. I mean, Britain says, my subject is war, the pity of war. And that's a quote, isn't it, from Owen? I don't think it's necessarily time or war specific. I think it's it's an act of reconciliation that we need more than ever, I think, at the moment. And for me, it's, it's yeah, it works whoever you think of, uh, or however you look back on history. And yeah, the text is from the First World War, but I think it's a requiem for, for everyone that's fallen. I was just concerned. I think this production brings that out more than you might imagine. So you can ask that question again after, you, or answer it yourself after you've seen it. I think, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. I wonder if you could join me in thanking our wonderful panelists.